The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles and uh, open up to the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 9 uh, this Sunday, and uh, we're turning again uh, to this powerful, fervent, sincere, and effectual prayer of a righteous man that accomplished much. And uh, like I mentioned last week, if you want a crash course on effective prayer, you need to register for Daniel's prayer class in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel teaches us how to pray. And uh, even more than just teaching us how to pray, he teaches us how to pray as exiles, as sojourners, as those who are a long way from home. And in broad terms, this text answers three questions about powerful prayer. What provokes powerful prayer in verses 1 and 2? What's the posture of powerful prayer in verses 3 to 4? And what's the pattern of powerful prayer in verses uh, 4 to 19? And the pattern of powerful prayer is where we'll pick up from where we left off last time. So let's take a look at our text, Daniel chapter 9, and I'll start at verse 4. It says, I prayed to the Lord, my God, and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, today as we always do. Now, Father, as we come before your word my Father, pleading with you that you would give us an understanding of these things, that you would open up our minds, Lord, to behold wonderful things as we walk through your word. And my Father, I pray that uh, you would allow your word to, to sink deep within our hearts, Lord. Father, that we would not just be simple hearers of your word, but that we would be doers as well. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Before we had a central... AC in our homes. Uh, we relied on the fans during the summer. And uh, in the larger room, it was helpful if you had one of those oscillating fans, because if you position it right, it could take care of the, the entire space. Uh, but you had to wait for it to kind of swing back around to you. And I remember when I was young, I'd actually just kind of follow the fan around, you know, to make sure I could catch the, the breeze. Uh, and that image came to mind as I was reading this passage, because in the passage before us, Daniel oscillates back and forth in his prayer between the exaltation of God and the confession of sin. He just keeps pivoting 
you know, just keeps turning back and forth, talking about who God is, then talking about who we are, then talking about who God is, then returning to talk about who we are. And we can discern at least four different movements back and forth between these two themes. Uh, The first movement we find in verses four to six, verse four, the beginning of Daniel's prayer, he extols the faithfulness of God. Look at verse four. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness. God is a God who keeps his word. And then he's reminded about his sin. Verse five, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled. Second movement is found in verses seven to eight. In verse seven, it's back to the Lord again. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. But then he turns to the shame of Israel at the end of verse seven. But to us, open shame as it is this day. Why? Because of their unfaithful deeds, which they have committed against you, because we've sinned against you. Third movement is found in verses nine to 13. In verse nine, he turns back to the Lord, to the Lord our God, belong compassion and forgiveness. And then he oscillates back to the confession that, runs all the way down to verse 13. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. And then the final movement is found in uh, verses uh, 14 and 15. The final movement in verse uh, 14, he turns to the Lord again. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. But what does he say after that? But we have not obeyed his voice. Verse 15, we have sinned. We have been wicked. These are the the four movements that will follow in this text, and it's the exaltation of God's faithfulness, his righteousness, his forgiveness, and his righteous deeds. And that's what led Daniel in this confession of sin. And it might not always be articulated that this is the pattern, uh, but this is the pattern that we see all over Scripture. First we see God, and then we see ourselves. Isaiah, it was only after Isaiah saw the vision of God that we find Isaiah crying, saying out, woe is me, I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He saw God and then he saw himself. Job, it was only after Job answered, uh, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind that, that Job responded by saying in Job 42 and verse five, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. He saw the Lord, then he saw himself. Peter, it was only after this demonstration of the Lord's power as he was in Peter's boat that led to a multitude of fish being caught. It was after that that Peter fell down at Jesus' feet and he says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He saw the Lord and then he saw himself. That's the biblical pattern of prayer. The conviction of sin doesn't exist in a vacuum. We can't manufacture, you know, this kind of conviction of sin. I remember when I was a young preacher, a new preacher, I asked my, my mentor, uh, Tom Leake, you know, what can I do to bring conviction in my preaching? You know, I wanted to be a, a convicting preacher. And he said, there's a lot of things that we could do to manipulate people or try to manufacture conviction, but that's something that only the Spirit of God can do. And how does the Spirit of God do that? It's through his word, and particularly when we understand the infinite gulf that exists between God and mankind. It's when we see God rightly that we see ourselves rightly. And the more grand and glorious and majestic we understand the Lord to be, the more wicked and heinous and evil we will understand our sins to be. 
So Daniel starts out where we should all start out. It's the glory and majesty of God. It's just like Jesus who taught his disciples to pray, hallowed be thy name. You start out with the glory of God. And this is where he starts in his prayer. Look at verse 4. He says, uh, alas, O Lord, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God. That word, uh, alas, and, and oh, alas, oh. Before Lord is what's called a particle of entreaty. It could be translated as please. We, we beg you. And it's a recognition that, that God, I, I know that I don't even deserve to be in your presence. Abraham says in Genesis 18, 27, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. I don't even deserve to be here. Jacob said in Genesis 32, 10, I'm unworthy of all the loving kindness or the least of your mercies, of the faithfulness which you've shown to your servant. We're unworthy. And we come before the greatest of all kings when we come before the Lord in prayer. Daniel understood what it was like to come into the presence of a king. He had, he had practice doing that. He was familiar with that. And he knew that you didn't just barge into the throne room to make your request without a, a show of respect. And in the book of Esther, we, we understand that Esther even feared for her life coming before King Ahasuerus, right? That's the meaning behind those words, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to come to the king. He hasn't even invited me to come, and I'm coming to the king. I mean, if I, if I perish, I perish. And that's before a merely earthly king. But God is the king above all kings, the great and the awesome God. The word awesome in the, the Hebrew that we find in verse 4 is the word yare, and it literally means fearful. The God is fearful. Our God is an awesome God. He deserves the highest respect. If an earthly king would be feared who can only kill the body, how much more respect should we have for the God who's after destroying the body can destroy the, the soul in hell? So Daniel acknowledges the greatness of this God in this first movement, this, this, this greatness of who God is. And in this first movement, we, the aspect that he highlights is the aspect of faithfulness. That's the first point. The faithfulness of God brings conviction of sin. Look at it again. He says, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Daniel reminds us that the Lord is, is faithful, the one who keeps his covenants. And that's what's demonstrated in a, in a number of ways. Number one, and this is a way that you might not even consider, but the only reason that Israel was experiencing captivity during this time is because the Lord was faithful to keep his covenant. God was keeping the covenant that he made with Israel, and that's why they were in exile. And this will be helpful for us to understand the kind of, of covenant that Israel was obligated to during this time. Uh, just to give you a little background, a covenant is a solemn or binding agreement, and uh, we talk about these major covenants in Scripture. They had these far-reaching implications uh, for the plan of redemption. There's a couple of these covenants that we find in Scripture. We find the, the Noahic covenant where God promised that he would not flood the earth anymore, and we can be thankful you know, for the rainbow today, that it doesn't, just, doesn't represent a, a diversity, but God withholding his judgment. That's what it represents. God made a covenant with mankind. The Abrahamic covenant was a covenant that God made with Abraham, that he promised him seed, land, and blessing, and all of that will be fulfilled with the people Israel, just as the Lord indicated. The Davidic covenant promised that there would be a king from David's line that would set up an eternal kingdom, and we know that that king is King Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
And each of those covenants are known as unilateral covenants, meaning that there's, there's nothing that, that we have to do in order for those covenants to be fulfilled. They're, they're unilateral from one party. God is the one who makes the covenant, makes the promise, and there's nothing that's necessary for man to do in order for that to be fulfilled. But that's not the case with the covenant of Moses. The Mosaic covenant is what's known as a bilateral covenant between two parties. There, there were stipulations for Israel to fulfill in order to receive the blessing of the covenant. For example, take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. Flip back to Deuteronomy 28 just to get, a, get an understanding, a little bit of an understanding of, of how this works. Because God set before Israel both a blessing and a curse. Both a blessing and a curse. Look at Deuteronomy 28 starting at verse 58. Deuteronomy 28 starting at 58. Look at what the Lord says here. Deuteronomy 28, starting at 58. If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues, and miserable and chronic sicknesses. He will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague which not written in the book of this law, the Lord will bring on you until you are destroyed. Then you shall be left few in number, whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven because you did not obey the Lord your God. It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. And you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. Among those nations you shall find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul, so your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you will be in dread night and day, and shall have no assurance of your life. Flip over to Deuteronomy 29, look at verse uh, 24. Deuteronomy 29, look at verse 24. It says, All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? Then men will say, Because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is this day. So why was Israel in the land of Babylon? It's because the Lord keeps his word. (laughs) The Lord means business. When the Lord speaks, he means it. And he follows through with his word. It was because the Lord was faithful to keep his covenant. And Daniel is acknowledging here that if we would have loved the Lord and kept his commandments, we would have still been in the land of blessing. But why are we here in Babylon? It's because we have sinned. That's why we're here. We've committed iniquity. We've acted wickedly. And God is faithful to keep his covenant. He's a covenant-keeping God. We're here because we haven't kept your covenants. And if it just stopped there, that wouldn't be very much to encourage us. You know, if all we knew that God is a great and awesome God and he brings punishment to his people... You know, that wouldn't be much to encourage us, but, but God directs himself also towards love and mercy. Back in Daniel chapter 9, not only is he faithful to this covenant, the one who keeps his covenant, but he's also the one who keeps loving kindness. He keeps loving kindness. 
Another way that God demonstrates his faithfulness is through this word loving kindness or loyal love. It's uh, the word chesed. It's a word that's used in scripture, a Hebrew word in scripture for loyal, covenant-keeping love. And that would have reminded the Israelites that even though they were being punished by God, that God had not completely abandoned them. He would still be faithful to them. This concept that's very similar to our New Testament word for grace, the kind of affection that God sets upon us, like Romans 8 talks about in verses 38 and 39, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that we have that promise. And for the nation of Israel, there was a similar kind of commitment that God made to them. God promised them that he would not forsake them as a nation. Flip over to the book of uh, Jeremiah. I'm going to have you turn in a lot today. Jeremiah chapter 31. Listen to the kind of commitment that the Lord made with Israel. And, and keep in mind that, that Jeremiah, we, we already talked about this, he's the weeping prophet. He's talking about how, how Israel is going to be judged for their sins. But listen to the, to the, to the loyal love that, that still sits underneath that. Jeremiah 31, look at verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. God says, I'm not, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. I'm not going to cast you off. And that's an expression of God's loyal love, loyal love. And that's exactly what he says further up. If you look at verse 3 of Jeremiah 31, he says that the Lord appeared to him, speaking about Israel, from afar, saying, I have loved you with a what? An everlasting love. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Chesed. I've drawn you with this loyal, faithful, covenant-keeping love. And I will commit myself to you. Shows up over and over again in Scripture in Micah chapter 7 and verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity, passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Ezra 9 and verse 9, we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but he has extended loving kindness to us. Kassed, Nehemiah 9, 17, you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in Kassed, loving kindness. You did not forsake us. God does not forsake us. And this would have been an encouragement to Israel, even though they had sinned, that God would not abandon his love for them as a nation and that's the confidence that we come before the Lord with as well. That God does not abandon us. There's a song that I, I remember uh, growing up singing, you know, please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. God has not abandoned us. He's committed himself to us. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. God has committed himself to you. And that's the, the same kind of commitment that we have that Israel had. Another way that the Lord demonstrates his faithfulness is by the use of his covenant name, Yahweh. 
something that's distinct in this chapter, and, and you might not have picked it up before, but if you're reading in the NASB or the ESV, the word LORD appears in all caps in verses 2, 4, 10, 13, 14, verse 20, also in some of your versions in verse 8. That's the covenant name for God. That's the name that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush when he said to Moses in Exodus 3, 15, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the I am who I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. It was a name that God specifically used to speak of his covenant faithfulness. He was the God who made promises to the fathers. He kept those promises. I was faithful to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and I'm going to be faithful to you as well. And he uses his covenant name in Daniel chapter 9, and very interestingly, nowhere else in the book of Daniel do you find this name. It's, it's in the connection where Daniel is confessing the sins of the people to God that he reminds them that your God is a covenant-keeping God, that your God is a faithful God, that he will not abandon you. He'll be faithful to you just as he was to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He'll be faithful to you as well, even though you have sinned. God is a God who is faithful. When everything is saying that God should abandon us, he reminds us that I am the covenant-keeping God. And the final way that we see the faithfulness of God in this section is that God has sent his servants, the prophets, to warn them. Look at verse 6 in Daniel. Daniel 9. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the peoples of the land. The prophets were, were called the servants of the Lord. That's what my, uh, my seminary professor called the, the covenant enforcers, you know, the prophets. The covenant enforcers. They're the law enforcement. They're coming to Israel basically to remind them of what the law says. You know, that traffic light back there was, was red, and you blew right through it. You know what the law says. You know, you're going the wrong way down this one-way street. You know better than that. You know what the law says. Did you know that you just did 90 in a 25-mile-per-hour zone, and it was an elementary school that you passed by? Do you know that? That's reckless driving. It's endangerment. You know what the law says. It's law enforcement. And the primary job of the prophets was to be the law enforcers. You know what the law says. You know what the consequences of breaking the law are. This, this is what the prophets were doing. They were the law enforcement of ancient Israel. And the Lord was faithful to send scores and scores of prophets, law enforcers, to Israel before the judgment fell. Think about this. You don't have to turn here, but you can write this down. Micah. Micah prophesied around 710 B.C., over 100 years before Babylon. Micah 2, verse 3 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks. Micah 4.10, Writhe in labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. That's 100 years. A hundred years ahead of time, there was a warning. Prophet Isaiah wrote his latest 681 B.C., around 75 years before Babylon. And he said to Hezekiah in Isaiah 39, Behold, the days are coming. This is in verses 6 and 7. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's 75 years out. Habakkuk wrote 
around 605 BC, the same year that Babylon invaded Judah. And he writes this in Habakkuk 1 in verses 5 and 6. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that's Babylon, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They were warned again. And then Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, wrote to Judah while the desolation was actually taking place. Jeremiah 22, verses 25 and 26. I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. And as Daniel is reading this from all of the books, it's obvious that the nation has been warned. We've been, we've been warned a hundred years out, and we didn't turn away. I mean, this wasn't some kind of stealth operation by God, you know, some kind of sneak attack. A hundred years, God has been saying, hey, I mean, this is what's going to happen. You don't divert from your course. This is what's going to take place. 75 years out, hey, I'm, I'm warning you, you know. He just keeps on warning them. But how do they respond to those warnings? We saw last week King Jehoiakim received Jeremiah's warning in Jeremiah 36, and what did he do? He shredded it to pieces, cut it, cut it apart with a knife, and then threw it into the fire. That's how they took the warnings of God. You know, that traffic ticket officer, yeah, this is what I think about that. Shredding the traffic ticket right in front of them and throwing it into the fire. That's how they treated the law enforcement. They didn't listen. Second Kings, flip over to the book of Second Kings. I already told you I was going to have you flip around a lot, right? Book of, of 2 Kings. Take a look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. It's just a, a summary of the, the long and sorrowful history of Israel. 2 Kings chapter 17. Take a look at verse 13. 2 Kings 17, I'll start at verse 13. It says, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, in which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers and his warnings, which, with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. They forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. They forsook the commandments of the Lord. And Daniel acknowledges that. It's treason in the highest degree. And Daniel agrees with God about what he's done. That word confession, it means to agree with. God, this is what you said, and, and I agree with you. This is what you said about our sin, and you know what? That's exactly what it is. Lord, you told us ahead of time, and, and, and Lord, I'm, I'm confessing that, that, I, that I was in, in full knowledge of that. This is the kind of honest confession that we have in this chapter. He acknowledges and specifies their sins before the Lord. Look at verse 5, back in Daniel chapter 9. How does he talk about the sins? Verse 5, he says, we have sinned. 
It's a word for missing the mark. We're, we're off target, Lord. You know, like Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I've, I've missed the mark. I've fallen short of the mark, Lord. We've committed iniquity. That's a word that means twisting, distortion, perversion. We've perverted justice. We haven't done what's right. We've tried to twist things up. We've acted wickedly, he says. We, we've done what we've known to be wrong, and we've decided to do it anyway. We've rebelled. It's a word that means to defy a known authority. You are the king over us, and we've rejected your authority. We've turned aside from your commandments and ordinances. We've, we've wandered away from the path or the marked way. Down in verse 6, he says, we have not listened. In the sense that, that we have not obeyed. We've heard, we've understood, we haven't obeyed. Verse 10 says, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. We did not listen to you. Verse 7, we've been unfaithful, committed unfaithfulness. In contrast to the Lord who's faithful, we've been unfaithful. We've made a commitment and we didn't follow through with it. Down in verse 11, we've transgressed. That means to cross the line. We knew where the line was, where the boundary was, and we've trespassed. We've gone over the line. It wasn't simply a misunderstanding. It's not explaining himself. He's not making excuses. He's not minimizing it. He's not pretending that this is something other than what it is. He's owning it. And that's a far cry from what we know about confessions today, don't we? Kevin DeYoung classifies the kinds of confessions we commonly hear from politicians and athletes and celebrities. He says, see if you can, if you recognize some of these confessions. The if confession. If I've hurt anyone or if I've offended anyone by my actions or comments, I apologize. The I'm sorry for the results confession. I regret that I have given people a reason to doubt my character. I apologize for the difficulty I've caused. This has been very embarrassing for me and my family. The technical confession. I would like the record to show that I believe my words were inappropriate and I see how my actions could be construed as offensive. The avoid responsibility confession. Growing up without a father, I, I never learned how to be a man because of the pressures in my life and the high standards I set for myself. I've not always been able to live up to those standards. Many factors contributed to this poor decision. It's, it's a complicated matter, and I sincerely, I sincerely wish it did not happen. The education confession. I've learned much through this ordeal. I now know myself better, and we're learning to be a family again. This unfortunate incident will serve to make us all better people. Or the just move on confession. There are many things I could say to address the allegations and the seeds of mistrust I've sown. The important thing is to put this chapter behind us and all move on together. John Owen in his classic work, The Mortification of Sin, says the first work of the Spirit is to, to bring about a mortification is this. He convinces the soul of all its evil. He cuts off all of lust's pleadings, uncovers all of its deceits, stops all of its evasions, answers all its self-justifications. He makes the soul to confess the abomination of its sin and to be cast down under the guilt of it. Unless this is done, all that follows is vain. How many times have you heard confessions that aren't really confessions? They're not really saying what it is. They're, they're trying to evade the consequences of their guilt. But the Holy Spirit brings us to a confession where we just say, no, no, it, it was wicked, it was sinful, it was wrong, 
It was iniquity. I'm not going to make it anything else than what it is. And for those who confess their sins and forsake them, they are the ones who find what? Mercy. You want mercy from God? You need to start admitting your sins. You acknowledge your sins before God. You don't try to evade it, sugarcoat it. It was a mistake. It was a mishap, unfortunate event. No. What I did was wrong. I sinned against you. Please forgive me. And the Spirit is the one who brings that kind of conviction of sins. Brothers and sisters, is that the kind of confession that you make before the Lord? And listen to this. It's the faithfulness of God that leads us into that kind of confession. It's the juxtaposing God with where we are. We look at God and his faithfulness, and then we look at ourselves and we say, you know what? I'm not there. I'm not there. Do you realize that God's been faithful to you? The life that you have is sustained by God. He's been faithful to you every day of your life. Acts 17, 28 says, in him we live and move and have our being. Your life has been given to you by God. He's been faithful to feed you and to satisfy your heart with good things. Acts 14, 17, he did good and gave you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Every joy that you've ever had has come from God. Psalm 145, 15 says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. When you've sinned, you've received forgiveness from God. Why? Because God is faithful. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the faithfulness of God. Even the fact that the sun will come out tomorrow, right? Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun, right? But why is that? Why will the sun come out tomorrow? Because God is faithful. Genesis 8.22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. We just sang it. Great is thy faithfulness, right? God, you've been faithful to me. One theologian writes, all the good things which creatures enjoy in the present and expect in the future flow to them out of this inexhaustible fountain. And when you sin, you sin against the faithfulness of God. The one who created you, who sustains you, who gives you good gifts, food and gladness, forgiveness of sin. That's the God that you sin against. Pardon for sin and peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 besides. Great is thy faithfulness. And now, having considered the faithfulness of God, and then you look at yourself, what do you see? Lord, now, now my sin is just in, in bold relief. I mean, I can't get away from it. How can I sin against such a faithful God? The faithfulness of God leads us to a confession of sin. And that's where, where conviction is not manufactured. It's not just people saying, hey, it's, well, it's time to confess now, so let's all confess. You know, just you know, feel convicted about your sin. No, it's, it's, it's I'm lifted up and I see God high and exalted, lifted up, and then I look down and it's just like, Lord, what a, what a worm I am. How, how could I sin against a God who is so lovely? How could I sin against a God who is so faithful? How could I sin against the great and the awesome God? Now I'm repenting in sackcloth and ashes because I've seen the Lord. That's where the conviction of sin happens. The faithfulness of God brings conviction of sin. Number two, the righteousness of God brings conviction of sin. 
The righteousness of God brings conviction of sin. Look at verse 7 back in Daniel chapter 9. It says, Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby, those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you, open shame belongs to us, O Lord. God, you are righteous. Righteousness of God has been defined as that perfection of God by which he maintains himself over against every violation of his holiness. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, no imperfection in God. Our Father is perfect, you know, Matthew 5.48. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. God is righteous. And the idea here is that this God, this righteous God, is worthy of all honor because it's contrasted with what? Our shame. The God who is righteous deserves all honor, all glory. I'm the one who deserves shame. And what Daniel is talking about here is the result of our unrighteousness, what our unrighteousness brings upon us. Unrighteousness is already in itself shameful. You know, we shouldn't try to minimize that. People, people should be ashamed of their sin and rebellion against God. You know, prior to the exile, the Lord said this about Jerusalem in Jeremiah six fifteen. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did, they did not even know how to blush. They took pride in their wickedness. You know, instead of calling it a shame parade, it's a pride parade, right? They don't know how to blush. Philippians 3, 19 says their glory is in their shame. But that's not what Daniel's talking about here. Daniel's not talking about the the subjective feelings of shame and embarrassment. He's talking about the objective, shameful judgment that sin results in. Ezra, after after the the exile, he, he says this in Ezra 9, 7. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to open shame as it is this day. It's not just that we feel ashamed, it's that we've been put to shame because of our sins. Shameful consequences, and what did that look like? The men of Jerusalem, Judah, and all of Israel were taken into captivity. That was shameful. How shameful would it be if someone were to break into your house, take all of your valuables, take your children, and all you could do was stand there and watch because you knew that you were powerless against it? What kind of shame would that bring? That's the kind of shame that came upon the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Israel in the north in 725, they were placed under siege in 722. The Assyrians came in, and Amos predicted what would happen. Amos Four in verse one, he says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. They're also a bunch of alcoholics. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You're gonna be led away, like almost by the nose, you know, a hook in your your nostrils. That's not feeling ashamed. That's being put to shame. 
you will be put to shame. That's what happened in Babylon, the southern, uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, Judah in the southern kingdom. Three separate deportations. Jeremiah 31, 15 says, Thus says the Lord, a, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation, bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. They would be taken away. Describes the mourning that would happen as they watched their sons being taken away from them. They were put to shame right out in the open. And that's what Daniel says. Open shame belongs to us. We've been scattered. We've been taken from our land. But not only were the people put to shame, their kings and princes were put to shame. That's what he says in verse 8. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings and our princes. Not only were the people put to shame, but so were the kings. Over in uh, 2 Kings 25, if you want to flip back there one more time, 2 Kings 25 describes the, the fall of Jerusalem that occurred in 586 B.C. Uh, you can listen or if you, you can find it, you can follow along with me. 2 Kings 25, starting at verse 1. It says, Now in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army against Jerusalem camped against it, built a siege wall around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls. Beside the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went by the way of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him, so the king is left alone. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah. Those would be the princes. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters, like I said, kind of being led away almost by the nose, put hooks in your mouth, you know, fish hooks, drag you away, drag them away with bronze fetters and brought them to Babylon. That, that wasn't feeling ashamed, that was being put to shame. And the last sight that Zedekiah would have had would have been watching his own boys being slaughtered right in front of his face. Powerless, able to do nothing. The king and his sons, put to shame. And Daniel doesn't say, Lord, that's so unfair. Lord, I, I don't understand why you would do this. We don't have, hear any objections. We hear Daniel saying, this is what belongs to us. This is, this is what we deserve. We don't object to God's judgment. How many times when a disaster occurs do you hear people saying, you know, where was God? Where was God at when that happened? Where was God on 9-11? Somebody tell me, where was God? You know, your God that you talk about. Where was your God when this happened? Daniel isn't here saying, where was God when Zedekiah had his eyes put out? Where was God when, the, when his sons were murdered? Where was God then? You know where God was? Right there in judgment on them. That's where God was. God was right there in judgment. God is not absent. He says, God is right here because we're unrighteous. We deserve this. It's because of our unrighteousness. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. God, we deserve it. And God, you're not wrong when we reap what we've sown. You're not wrong. And Daniel brings all these sins out into the light in confession before the Lord. But there's something that you may not have considered, and it's this, that Daniel actually didn't personally commit any of these sins. Here Daniel is confessing sins, and he's not committed any of these sins. 
when Daniel was stolen from Judah, he was just a teenager. He wasn't practicing the idolatry that the rest of the nation was practicing. All that we know from Daniel, even in his earliest years of of life, he was fully committed to the law of God. He was even prepared to suffer the consequences of death in order to keep the diet of Israel. He was willing to die and be thrown into the lion's den just because he wanted to keep his prayer time. That's the testimony of Daniel. He was a righteous man. So why does Daniel, as a righteous man, take on the sins of Judah? That doesn't make sense. Why would he take this on and confess these sins as if they were his own? We'll get more into this next time we're together, but this isn't the only time in Scripture that we find somebody taking on the sins of somebody else. Why don't you flip over to the book of Matthew? Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. What we find in Matthew chapter 3 is John the Baptist, he's baptizing the nation in preparation for the Messiah. His baptism is a baptism of what? Repentance. It's a baptism of repentance. And the closest picture that the Jewish people had to what John the Baptist was doing was what was called Gentile proselyte baptism, where a Gentile admitted publicly that he was disassociating himself from his past. That everything that I've done, everything that I've known, my culture, my upbringing, like everything is to be repudiated. I'm I'm disassociating myself from my old life. All my habits, all my friends, my, my home, all that I've known, that's the old, it's all defiled, and I'm taking on a new life. That's what the Gentile was doing when he was baptized by the Jewish people. And now John is saying to these Jewish people that you need to be baptized. You you need to disassociate yourself from everything that that you know. It's not just that you've come into contact with something that's unclean. You are unclean. You are the one who's defiled. It's saying that I'm dirty, I'm defiled. I'm sinful. That's what this baptism of repentance was. Matthew 3, verse 6, it says they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Baptism of repentance, and here they are, confessing their sins publicly. This is how I've sinned. And then Jesus shows up to this same baptism. A baptism of repentance where people are confessing their sins, acknowledging before God that I'm defiled, I'm dirty, I'm unworthy. I need to disassociate myself from everything that I've known. And then Jesus shows up to this baptism. Look at verse 13. Matthew 3. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Why was John trying to prevent Jesus from being baptized? Because, Lord, you you don't have any sins to confess. This, This is not for you. You don't have to confess any sins. Why are you here at my baptism? Lord, you're perfect. What what do you have to identify with? But Jesus is here identifying himself with his people. Jesus Christ identified himself with sinners. He took upon himself the shame of their sin. He identified himself with sinners so that sinners could be identified with his righteousness. Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus answering said to him, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Who was Jesus fulfilling righteousness for? Was it for himself? No. 
Jesus was fulfilling righteousness for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Just like Daniel confessing the sins of his people when he himself had not committed those sins, Jesus Christ steps into the waters of baptism, a baptism of repentance to identify himself with those who had sinned so that we could be identified with his righteousness. And if you're here today and you haven't confessed your sins to the Lord, I want to let you know that there is forgiveness of sins because of the one who took sins upon himself. There's forgiveness of sins. Jesus was put to an open shame, enduring the cross, despising the shame so that he could become the author and perfecter of your faith. And you don't have to walk in the shame of your sin. You can walk in the freedom of forgiveness if you turn to Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And as we go to the Lord in prayer, I'd I want to read for you a a prayer by Martin Bucer. He was a a German Protestant reformer. He wrote this prayer based off of Daniel chapter 9. Listen to these words. Almighty God, eternal God and Father, we confess and acknowledge unto you that we were conceived in unrighteousness and are full of sin and transgression in all of our life. We do not fully believe your word nor follow your holy commandments. Remember your goodness, we beseech you, and for your name's sake, be gracious unto us and forgive us our iniquity which, alas, is great. In Jesus' name, we give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website, and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.